Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Walt Koken, author of Fire on the Mountain. Walt Koken, author of Fire on the Mountain, an American Odyssey. For people who don't know you or know nothing about the music you play, what music do you play? I play what we call it old-time music. It's the folk music of our country, really. It's uh, fiddle, fiddle tunes, dance tunes, and ballads and songs. I, I play the fiddle and the banjo. Is it like bluegrass? Well, bluegrass is a kind of a, a growth of, out of old-time music, yeah. Bluegrass is more modern. How'd you get interested in it? Uh, gee, I heard it. I heard the New Lost City Ramblers. I was playing banjo already, and so, yeah. It was a, it was a, a process. It's hard, to, it's hard to reconstruct it, but, um, uh, you know, when you hear this stuff, it, it, it gets under your skin. Was banjo your first instrument? Yeah. Yeah. Why banjo? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, my brother came home with a guitar one time and showed me some chords, and he said, why don't you get a banjo? We'll make some money. <laughs> I fell for it. I was about 12. Were there other banjo players who you listened to or wanted to be like? Well, uh, I got the Pete Seeger book, and of course I got some rec records of him, and uh, uh, and then it just went from there. Uh, you know, there was the Kingston Trio. They had banjos. There was, and I saw Flat and Scruggs on TV, on, I think it was the Omnibus program on Sunday afternoon, and that was just, you know, fascinating. And uh, so one thing led to another. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of banjo heroes. Where were you living at the time? Syracuse, New York. Yeah. Were there banjo players around you? Not that I knew of. No. The only ones that I knew of were on recordings. So, yeah. Well, before we go too far into it, let's uh, give viewers a chance to get a sample of the kind of music you play. Okay. Okay, well, I'd like to introduce Claire Milliner, my favorite fiddler. Someone who I play with every day. In one way or the other. Yeah. And we're going to play a little tune called Sugar in the Gourd. And I, I may try to sing it, although I have a little cold. So I hate to ruin it. But here it goes. Ready? One, two. <laughs> Thank you. 
sugar in the gourd. Can't get it out. So old time music, you were, when did you start getting, you started banjo when you were about 12 or so, and when did you discover old time music? I would have to say, uh, oh, four or five years later, I, 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 I got turned on to the, to the new Lost City Ramblers and some of the Folkways records that they had recorded of other people, Wade Ward and Roscoe Holcomb, and uh, and uh, and then the county label came, started coming out with reissues of old 78s, which the old time music was a pretty big big time music business in the 1920s when the early recording industry started, and so there there's a you know a, a a huge amount of recordings from those days, yeah. Were you at the time kind of an oddity in being interested in this music, or were there other people around you who listened to it? Fairly odd, but yeah, I met, you know, and of course you, you meet people who, who like this kind of music, and we would play together and, and learn together, so, yeah. Well, why'd you write your book? Well, the, the motivation for the book was First off, I've had many, many adventures playing music and traveling and so on, but the, 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 the main motivation was the Old Time Herald magazine, which is dedicated to old time music. It started back in, I believe, the late 80s, and, um, and it had articles about uh, old people who played and old recordings and, and young people who played and so on like that. And, and reviews of recordings, uh, re-releases and new, new releases. And uh, it has gotten a bit played out. So I thought, well, maybe I'll write some little adventures that we had playing in my band back in the, in the, uh, in the 70s. And maybe that would help. So I, I did. I wrote maybe 15 different uh, short articles, probably 1,500 words of different adventures that we had on the road and uh, so and people liked them and I always really wanted to write about my adventures so so I I, I just put some more together in, in this book which covers from about 1964 to about 1978 so it's a memoir how did you remember it all how could I forget it, <laughs> it, it a lot of the things uh, really stand out. Now, some of the details were easy for me to dig up on the internet. About yourself? No, about, say, for instance, who was playing at such and such a festival. And, you know, I had a, I had a, a short list, but I could go back and look up that, that year and, and find out who all was there. So. You start off the book telling on your 18th birthday, 1964, for your a present, your mom gave you a ride to the highway and dropped you off. Yep. You had 73 cents in your pocket. Yep. And your banjo? My banjo. What were you thinking? Change the clothes. Well, uh, um, I had already uh, uh, been asked to, to leave the University of Missouri for a year because of uh, my bad grades. And um, and I couldn't get a job. I was I was underage. And I was 
underqualified or overqualified. I, I just, and my mom didn't want me around if I couldn't get a job. And so I waited until I was, finally I was 18 and, and I left. And I, 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 my brother, who we played music together, offered me a place to stay. So I hitchhiked up to, to his house in Rochester. And, uh, and that, was, that was the beginning of that. I never did go back to school. You talked about a job in, uh, in New York with your brother uh, taking care of lab rats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, this fellow, Professor Frank Rosenblatt, uh, was doing uh, uh, experiments in, in, uh, in memory. He wanted to know what memory was, what learning was. And so he, we were training rats, so I got to run the rats. You played the banjo for the rats. I could, <laughs> I could play the banjo for them, yeah. They never really responded. <laughs> did, did you find a music, was this Rochester? No, that was in Ithaca. Ithaca. Yeah. Was there a music scene there that you fell in with? A little bit, yeah. It was a little bit of a music scene, and there was a, a fiddle player named George Dorian that I, that I, uh, actually there was a band called the Busted Toe Mud Thumpers, and the banjo player was leaving. He was graduating, I believe, so they needed a banjo player, so I fell right in with those guys, and uh, that was fun. Were you any good? Oh, yeah. The band? You as a player. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was fairly, fairly competent and, and learning all these new uh, old-time fiddle tunes on the banjo that were coming out uh, on, the, on these reissues, you know, of old 78s. So we had a lot of fun, and George, his folks were from, his mo mother was from Nova Scotia, and he'd been up to Cape Britain uh, several times and was very into that style of fiddling, too, which is real nice and uh, old-time, more Scottish and French. Did you play around a lot, a lot of jobs? We played around a little bit. We, you know, we played for the, the, the foreign student orientation. <laughs> At Cornell, we we played a little bit of this and that. We started playing for square dances uh, up up at, on campus, and uh, the caller had never played with a live band. He, he always used records, so that was fun, and that was a real uh, experience to to play for dancers because that's what that music is all about. Yeah. What were some of the tunes you played? Uh, we played all the old, you know, Soldier's Joy, Sally Ann, uh, uh, Leather Britches, uh, on and on and on. Do you remember what a typical payday was for a job like that? No. I don't think there was a payday in those days. Uh, occasionally we'd get a job and, and, and make 10, 20 bucks. Yeah. Well, what's the earliest recording of you, you or your band playing? Well, George had a had a tape recorder, uh, a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. This is back before the days of cassettes and so on, and uh, so we would make tapes sometimes, and um, uh, 
we went to Union Grove one year and he recorded me playing with John Ray, lost John Ray. It was a, he had a, this portable tape recorder that had like 12 D-cell batteries in it. And so as, as he recorded and the batteries wore down, the, t the tape ran slower. So when you play it back at a regular speed, the music sped up. <laughs> and so there, there's that. That was back in like 1967 or so. And uh, yeah. You also got into a uh, New Orleans jazz type band? Yeah. Did yeah, you have to learn from scratch how to do that? Well, pretty much, yeah. Um, um, I knew chords. When I first uh, started playing, I bought books that had chords in them and learn. So uh, I, I didn't really know that kind of music, but they needed a banjo player for that band too, it was the, the Muskrat Ramblers. And they, they, were really, they were really a good bunch of, of, of players. And uh, the, the leader at the time was Roy Rubenstein, who uh, was a nuclear physicist, and uh, he was from England. And he had a book a cheat book. It was a little notebook like this, and you look up the tune, it would have the tune name, and it would have the chord slash 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 chord slash slash slash. That's all it was. That's all I needed to know. And uh, uh, I did not know that, that music much at all, but yeah, I picked it up, and sitting there with the piano and a bass and, and three horns, it was easy. When did you start to fiddle? Well, uh, George had a, had two fiddles, and sometimes he would try to get me to play because I knew the tunes. And 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 to me, it was just a matter of putting it all together, and which I didn't do very well at the time. But then uh, he he and a and a and another bandmate uh, met their fatal doom in a car accident. And so um, that was in 1969. And the fall of 69, I borrowed my sister's fiddle and started playing it. So that's when I really started in. Were you just self-taught? Yep. Yep. Self-taught. I never had a lesson or anything. You, you write in the book that you found yourself in the midst of the People's Park riots in Berkeley. In, in Berkeley. In 1969. Yeah. Yeah, we we had uh, we had started out to go to Alaska to get jobs for the Forest Service up there as a band, and ended up somewhere in Canada deciding, no, we weren't going to go that far. We we're just going to go to California. So we had some connections there to play, and we we. Uh, we went back there the next year. That was in 68, and then in 69, and the People's Park riots happened. It was terrifying. Yeah. Was there an old-time music scene there at the time? Yes, there was. Uh, there was another band called the Dr. Humbead's New Tranquility String Band. That was Mac Benford and Sue Draheim. Uh, and uh, Eric and Sue Thompson and Will Spires. <clears throat> there was 
actually quite a few more musicians, some bluegrass, some old time. And uh, I think that that scene grew. There's still quite a, I think, a, quite a good old time scene out there now. And yeah. you were with your band then, the Busted Mud Thumpers? The Mud Thumpers, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was until they've died. What, what kept you going with old time music? Um, well, just I loved it. I, I have music in my in my veins, and I, I wanted to play it. I wanted to, to be able to to make a living at it. We were good. We had good good results with playing with pe for people. <coughs> so <clears throat> it just kept me up, kept me alive. What did you do for money? Well, we played on the streets. <clears throat> I mean, when I wasn't running rats at the rat lab in in Ithaca. And uh, uh, yeah, we played on the streets, and then we started to get jobs and play for various people. And somehow we managed to scrape by. Could you get paying jobs in California? Yeah, yeah, we got jobs there. And of course, after uh, after the breakup of the band, the 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 Humbeads band broke up too. So so we sort of reformed and started. Uh, Started playing with Mac and Bob Potts and and some of the other folks out there too, and and we would play on campus and pass the hat, or we'd go over to San Francisco and play various places, Fisherman's Wharf or or somewhere, and we got gigs. We would go play uh, clubs at night, and uh, yeah, we got we made some money. That was enough to keep you going. Just the it, money you made. In it was yeah made us enough to scrape by and i i don't know how we did it but yeah you you talk a lot about hitchhiking yeah in the book can yeah. you talk about that a little bit well it was an earlier day you don't see many people hitchhiking anymore but um <clears throat> uh if you if you only had seventy three cents, there's only one way to travel, <laughs> and I did that. I I hitchhiked uh, quite a bit around. It was uh, it was becoming more and more illegal to hitchhike. Uh, oh, I remember somebody saying the governor of Arkansas's son was hitchhiking and got murdered, and so you get this political. You get people who were hitchhiking who were maybe a little bit uh, not up and up people. Maybe they're hitchhiking because they're like me. They're broke. Except I, I didn't have any ulterior motive except just to get from one place to another. What was the banjo you played at the time? Uh, I had a, a SS Stewart Thoroughbred that I bought for 35 bucks. At Onondaga Music in Syracuse, made in Philadelphia. Yeah, that's right. And uh, of course, it, to, to me at that time, I thought I wanted a master tone, but I I had no resources, and master tones cost a lot more than thirty-five bucks. So I never did get get one of those. What kind of banjo do you play today? 
It's an Orpheum. I, I bought that in 1966 in, in, uh, in Ithaca. What do you like about it? Uh, well, it's the only one I got. <laughs> Actually, I do have a couple now, that, but I, I don't really play them. I just play the Orpheum. I like it. It's, it's big. It's got a nice big head and long neck, and, and it, it pushes back. I like that. I like a banjo that responds. Now, for, for people who do know you, something they might not know about you is that you were into judo pretty seriously for a while. Yeah, yeah, that was a thing that my brother got me into at, at Cornell. And it was a, it's a great it was a great discipline and you know uh, good athletic things good good training and uh, physical training and uh, a lot like music in a way because you had to you had to accomplish a certain technique you had to learn certain techniques in order to to do it. Just like music, music. I mean, you you need to, you know, if you get an idea of a song you want to play, you have to you have to work you have to work it out, and, and learn it, and put it into your fingers and put it into your head. Same with judo. And uh, so, yeah. And you write about a trip to Japan, that where it sounded like when you arrived, nobody knew who you were or didn't expect you. No, that was yeah. Uh, I uh, we were gonna we were gonna start a new sports club in Ithaca, and my instructor, who was actually the fencing coach at Cornell at the time, he was it was his his uh, his dream, I guess. And so we put on some some judo demonstrations and raised a little money, so that to send me to Japan. <clears throat> and uh, my dad pitched in and, uh, and I did go to Japan to, to get uh, accredited, to get a, a, uh, a ranked so that I could come back because uh, the, the, judo, the judo instructor in Ithaca was not affiliated with any judo federation organization. So so I went to Japan, and that was a real experience, a real experience. Were you accepted there as a judo? Yeah, yeah. I was very respectful of the, of the art and respectful of the older people, and they, they liked me. And then I learned a lot. I loved that. But, but I, I couldn't stay. It's in the book. I hate to give it all away. But, uh, yeah. Did you have some goal in mind at the time, at that point in your life? Well, um, I was, um, that was right after the, the band died. And two, huh? two band members were yeah. killed in the automatic accident? Yeah. And um, so um, I... I thought that we were all going to be living in Ithaca and all have jobs. And my job was going to be working in the sports club. 
as not only a judo instructor but as a as a uh, you know a physical education instructor instructor so um and so i went to japan right after they had their accident and i thought well this this is going to be my way of life but i got over there and and i couldn't play music there it just was not the right vibe I was in the wrong place for that, and I missed that, so I left and came back, and eventually started this that new band, the the it was the Fat City String Band at first, and that's sort of the focus of most of your book, the Fat City String Band and the Highwoods. So yeah, before yeah. we get into that, let's listen to a, a another tune. Okay. Thank you. 
did the Highwood String Band come together? Well, um, Mac Benford and Bob Potts and I have started up the, the Fat City String Band. And this was in California? In California. And, uh, and we, <clears throat> our configuration was pretty much that Mac played banjo and Bob and I played fiddles. And Mac can play guitar, and I can play banjo, and Bob can play, and we we did that, and we've, but <clears throat> it never really resolved itself. And we came east and went to some fiddle contests and stuff, and uh, and I ended up staying in Ithaca, back in Ithaca, and staying with Doug Dorshug and his girlfriend Jennifer Cleland, and Doug had been a friend of George's back in the day and uh, Doug they were they both played music so the three of us played together for over the winter and we borrowed a, ba a string bass from uh, of some friends and Jenny played that and Doug of course again he can play guitar he can play banjo he can play anything piano Doug's a great musician and so but then in the spring Mac had moved to Maryland, so he came up for a visit, and we decided, well, let's let's go down to uh, Union Grove Fiddler's Convention in, in Easter at Easter time, and so we got Bob to come out from California. So there's the five of us: two fiddles, banjo, guitar, and a bass, <clears throat> and it just was dynamite. It worked like it just like falling off a log. And we knew that we knew a lot of the music, the same music. It was easy to to work things out, and and we we started playing. We called ourselves the Fat City String Band, and uh, our friends Ken and Marion from Rounder Records had they started Rounder Records. They they said anytime you want to do do a record, let us know. So so we did. We did some recording and. It was at that time that our, our friends at the Smithsonian Institution told us that there was another band with that name, Fat City. They called themselves Fat City, who, who were a backup band for a popular singer at the time. And so, John Denver. Yeah, John Denver. And they, they uh, advised us to change our name before we released our album. So we did, and we called ourselves the Highwood String Band, uh, mostly from uh, Charlie Poole's song, who was the coot from Tennessee, and, and he says, uh, the chorus goes, I'm gonna live, we always thought it was, I'm gonna live in the Highwoods till I die. There's many, most people think it's, I'm gonna live anyhow until I die. But Charlie Poole had gotten shot, you know, through the mouth. And so it was very hard to understand a lot of the things that he sang. So we always called it Highwoods. You recorded your album outdoors? Yeah, yeah. Yep, and um, it was a long playing, short selling. <laughs> but uh, it helped. We sold a few. Do you make money off your album? Not very much. It wasn't very much then. We, we were able to 
to, to I think buy buy them from Rounder for two dollars and sell them for four. I think albums went for four dollars in those days, and the ones that they sold, I think we got ten cents for the band. So it was not a, a lot of profit, but they were good advertising, and so yeah. I want to ask you about Jenny Cleeling. She played the bass in the band. Was, was it unusual at the time to have a bass and a woman bass player in an old-time band? Yeah. Um, um, when we went to to fiddle contests, fiddlers conventions, they there were a lot. Most of the bluegrass bands had had a string bass, and in uh, in fact, in the early days. The, the fiddlers who entered the contest were usually backed up by a bluegrass band, even though they were playing old-time music. So it was, it was a, it easy, easy for us to just fall into that and, and get Jenny to play bass. It, it was a big, big sound, two fiddles, guitar and banjo. And so, and um, I have to say that in those days, there, there weren't, that many women playing uh, old-time music. There, there were some, but not, not, not like today, where there's where it's well rep, they're well represented in the old-time community. What was life like in the Highwood String Band? Uh, well, we traveled quite a bit. We had, we got in our trucks and. <clears throat> And drove here and there and got gigs, college concerts and festivals and coffee houses and various places. And it wasn't easy. It's hard work to doing that and uh, uh, and, and and traveling and then still trying to be lively and entertaining. You all traveled in the same vehicle. Well, when we first started, both Mac and and I had had. Uh, old Ford panel trucks from the early 50s. And they fell by the wayside and we, we bought a, a, collectively bought a, a window van and, and uh, fitted it out with a, a bed with a, a, at window height with a foam mattress that you could put all the instruments underneath it. And, and it had two seats in front and then a, a bucket and then a bench seat for three people, so yeah, we could we put a lot of miles on that. In fact, we wore one out and 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 bought another one. Yeah. Do you remember some performance you had where you felt like everything was clicking, like we were really on tonight, and like we're on our way? Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of times like that when we were at Union Grove there in 1972, that first time. They had a tent. They had a tent that must have held ten thousand people in it. It was huge, and we got that place rocking. And you know, we thought we had something. We did. Do you remember the biggest bust of of jobs, like where you drove the longest distance to have the the biggest disappointment when you got there? <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> I can't really, 
pull up anything like that. I mean, there was a lot of ups and a lot of downs. You did write about trying to get into Canada to a big festival there. Yeah, yeah, we got in trouble at the border there. Uh, somebody had, had given a person in the band a little aspirin tin full of marijuana seeds and said, hey, plant these. Of course, that was part of the culture at the time. And uh, they never got planted. They got planted in the medicine, somebody's medicine cabinet. And when we went to go to, to the Mariposa Festival in, near Toronto, Canada, they got thrown in somebody's bag. And they found those at the border. And they, uh, they turned us away. <laughs> it was very disappointing. But, oh well. Well, you write in here that um, the best year we had in the band, our individual net incomes were about $4,800. Yeah, yep. Not much. I mean, we worked full time. Well, full time. We were on the road probably half of the half the days of the year. And uh, you know, I think we grossed about fifty thousand dollars, which isn't too bad. But we had to spend about half of it on travel. And so, and then we split up the rest, and that's that's what that's what it amounted to. And it was. A, uh, you know, I think the poverty level at that time was around $20,000. So we were, we were really scraping by. How did you decide what your repertoire was? I mean, who would bring tunes in and who would decide, yeah, we'll do that, no, we won't do that? Well, uh, um, some, some of it was brought, for instance, by me from the Mud Thumpers. Some of it was brought by Mac from the, his band and, and by Bob from, from his band. And some of it, now Mac had a, had a, a tape collection that was uh, all the old 78s. It was a wall full of tapes. And, and after the band started rolling, Doug and Jenny had that at, at their house. And they learned lots of stuff from that uh, songs, Carter family, uh, all kinds of stuff. So everybody input, and everybody, and we all just loved playing. And we would at, early on we would have band practice all the time, and uh, and just work on new stuff and play old stuff and have fun. Tell me about the trip to South America. Well. Uh, we played at the National Folk Festival at Wolf Trap Farm Park down by Washington, D.C. And the fellow that ran that was uh, Andy Wallace. And he, um, he put together this tour of, of, of Latin America for the State Department. And so uh, it was 26 people. People who played at the National Folk Festival, and then we all flew down and spent six weeks traveling through Central and South America, and that was quite a quite an experience, and you know, uh, quite hard work too. I think we had six days off in during those six weeks. How was your music received in South America? Pretty good, pretty good. Depended from place to place. Um, you know, uh, one of the things we did. 
the, there was a Cajun band. It was D.L. Menard and the Louisiana Aces. It was Marc Savoie and Lionel Lelou on the fiddle and the accordion. And, uh, and uh, D.L., they, they called him the, the Cajun Hank Williams. And he, he, he loved to sing. He, he could sing Hank Williams songs, and he wrote a lot of stuff himself, too. And he, he, he liked to do the uh, Hank Williams song down there because Hank Williams was popular and they knew those songs and they liked that. So he, but he couldn't get Mark and, and Lionel to really do them the way he liked, so he got us to back him up on, a, on one tune during the show in the evening. And so we played, we, we did that down in uh, Vina del Mar in, in Chile and 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 they they went crazy. It was this auditorium. They just loved it so much. They started clap, clapping for an encore and started stamping their feet. And it sounded like the place was going to come down. It was very scary. So we had to go back up and appease them, you know, and do another one. It was a little out of the ordinary. But. You. You talked earlier in this interview about your heroes and your musical heroes, and one of them you talked about was Tommy Jarrell, who you got to meet, and he had heard of you. Yeah. Well, when Mac and Bob and I went east, we played at the Marion, Virginia Fiddlers Convention, and we <clears throat> we uh, we swept that. We won the band, we won the fiddles, we won the banjo, and so. Uh, and so we, we traveled around a little bit, and then we went and visited Tommy. And he had already heard about us from, uh, from somebody who, that he was friends with who, who was there. So he had heard about us. And uh, he was pretty welcoming, you know. He, a lot of people went and visited Tommy. I think they, he had a sign on the, on the door or something like, first night is free. Second night at a hundred bucks. I don't know. Some, I can't remember. But yeah. Was there a time with the Highwoods that you you started to think you know we're we're not going to get famous? Well, um, we had a certain amount of fame, but it it wasn't paying off, uh, and so after a while it started to wear wear thin. You know, um, the enthusiasm for getting together wasn't there. Doug and Jenny, actually, both of them moved to Tennessee. They wanted to be closer down to the music, and the and the winters in in uh, Ithaca were getting long and slushy. So, so there was this, there was a sort of a falling falling apart gradually, gradual, you know. Oh well, let me back up a minute, and can you tell about the uh, Carnegie Hall concert? Well, that was the new Lost City Ramblers. 20th anniversary, and they they asked us to play there. And so we played, and and they had Elizabeth Cotton and Pete Seeger, and us. It was a nice show. We got to play right in Carnegie Hall, you know, you know. Did you get paid for it? A little. They paid our expenses, you know, like uh, we uh, we asked the taxi driver how to get to. Carnegie Hall, and he said, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> How did you end up in Pennsylvania? I fell in love 
with Claire, Claire Milliner, and uh, yep, that was it. Great fiddler. And you gave up music for ten, year, ten years? Yeah. Well, it was probably longer than that. It was, I think, we, the Highwoods broke up in 78, and, uh, and I didn't play again until around 91. Why did you go all that time without playing? Well, uh, the band, you know, things got worse and worse with the band, and it finally got to a point where uh, it, playing, instead of being uh, the joy that it once was, just reminded me of the, the, the hard time, the hard times we had traveling and, and uh, you know, and trying to, trying to make a living at it, at something that was not working. So, so I quit. How'd you make a living after that? I did carpentry. I, well, I did carpentry for as long as I could, and then when things started hurting, I, I took the civil service exam and, and started working as a rural carrier for the post office. What got you back to music? Just, I just couldn't, couldn't stay away. Actually, my friend Marty Levinson, who was in the Busted Toe Mud Thumpers, um, had, he was, he used to come visit from, up from New York City and he saw I had a banjo that had a, was hanging on the wall that had a broken head. So he brought me a, uh, he brought me a head and I mounted it on there just to make it look better. And of course I tried to play it then and it was a little fretless, and then, uh, you know, it, it, I get a little frustrated with fretless because there's only so much you can do with that. So, so I got out the old Orpheum and started playing that, and pretty soon I was just back playing. What band are you in now? Well, we have the Orpheus Supertones, named after, uh, after the two banjos that are in the band. My banjo is the Orpheum, and, and Pete Peterson's Banjo is the Supertone, which was a, a Sears Roebuck label, I believe, back in the 20s. And his banjo actually supposedly was one of Charlie Poole's banjos. Did you know that? I had heard that, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. How often do you play? Well, We've been going going at it since uh, 2003, so it's been, what, uh, 15 years, and uh, we actually play less and less and less. It's We've been together longer than Highwoods was. But uh, we like to have what we call band practice in the middle of the week. We get together at one or the other's houses, and, and we eat and drink and play music. And so, yeah, there's that. Are there uh, Highwoods or Orpheus Supertone recordings available? Oh yes, uh huh. There's the uh, High, Highwoods had made three LPs for Rounder, and and then the, I guess back in the '90s they 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 did a compilation of the of that of the three on a on a CD. So so there's that. And uh, and then of course uh, we got together with Pete and Kelly for the Orpheus Supertones and 
and we've made three CDs with them. What is the state of old-time music now? Well, I think it's thriving. It's doing pretty good. It's 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 much a much bigger scene than than there there was back when we started back in the in the in the '60s and '70s, and uh, uh, it's a different feeling. Uh, like uh, you know, I I always say you know back in those days, uh, you you get an old time band or even a bluegrass band, and you'd go to a fiddler's convention, and they'd They'd get in a circle out in the field, and people would gather around them, and they'd play and play and play and play. And nowadays, people put up their canopies and bring lots of chairs, and you get a group of people, sometimes 20 people, playing at once. It's a different kind of scene. It's more communal. It's more congenial, I think. And uh, so it's kind of nice. Why isn't it more commercially successful? Why is what? Old-time music. Why isn't it? Why isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, um, for the one th one thing is that it that the music is in the public domain, and so uh, commercially it's not viable. There are no royalties for that. Nobody wrote it that you know of, and so. There are no, there's no commercial incentive to promote it, including our government. See, the government s sets up copyright laws to promote creativity. And so even though you have to be very creative to, to play old-time music, there are no royalties. So, you know, the bluegrass band that writes their own music they make money. They get royalties. When they record it, if somebody else records it, they, they, they get a royalty for that. Whenever they get played on the radio, they get a royalty for that. But old-time music, nothing. The tunes are traditional? Traditional. Public domain. No one knows who wrote them? No. Or if they know who wrote them, it, it never was claimed, you know. If uh, people watch this and they want to know more about old-time music, where do they find it? Where can they find old-time music played or listen to it? Well, I mean, there's a whole world of recordings of old-time music, new and old. And uh, I guess you could find it on the web. Like, uh, you know, we have a, a mudthumper.com. It's a website where our stuff is, including the books and and everything, but uh, I don't really, I don't know if there's one place you could find it. Just Google old-time music. Uh, we have been talking with Walt Koken. He is the author of this book, Fire on the Mountain, An American Odyssey. And before we finish, let's listen to one more tune. And here's an old tune called The Falls of Richmond. Hey, I'm ready. Mm. Oh, my God. 
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.